Good morning. Today's reading is from John 2, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a joy to see you. Why don't we go ahead and pray now that God's word's been read for us this morning. God, I was just, just really delighting in the the leadership of Aaliyah and the team before us, just as we are singing and remembering who you are and how you work in us and how you work for us, even when it doesn't feel like it. And so, God, we just come to you now, um, only because you came to us first, and we anticipate you to work through your word. We anticipate that we don't have to leave our lives at the door and you've just come to speak to a real small part of our life, but instead you've come to speak in every nook and cranny of our life because that's how good you are, that's how big you are, and that's how much you love us. So we come with all of us <laughs> wanting you to speak into all of us. We trust your spirit to do that. We ask this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the spirit and for the glory of the Father. And all God's people said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, today's uh, passage that we're going to look at is a moment where Jesus, he shows up to a wedding. People are drinking a lot. They run out of drink, out of wine, and he gives them a lot more. So this might not be the first like image that you have is like Jesus shows up with the booze, okay? Um, and it may not even be the last thing in your imagination, and that might be Partly because um, our imaginations, at least in a lot of the framework of the world to now, have, be, have been informed by a really famous painting by a gentleman by the name of Warner Salman. It's entitled Head, The Head of Christ there. Um, there he is. It's one of the most popular paintings uh, of Jesus um, this world over. The only problem is it's not historically accurate really at all, um, so it doesn't help us. Uh, <coughs> So, uh, and the other thing is, I don't know if I want him coming to my party anyway, whoever this, whoever this guy is, because uh, that's not an accurate portrayal of Jesus historically. So, so who is Jesus, right? That kind of begs the question, and what is Jesus like, really? Um, the beauty is we're walking through 
an account from a guy who knew him personally. He would have looked at that painting and said, who's that guy? Who's that Norwegian cousin of somebody? Um, <laughs> that's not Jesus. Uh, that's not the guy I know. Um, and, th- and the beauty is, is that G- John, he not only knew Jesus, but he spends days, weeks, months, years of his life mauling over his experiences th- with Jesus. No doubt many a people came to John and said, tell me about Jesus. And he had the opportunity to tell the stories over and over and over again. And then finally, at some point in his life, he comes to the realization that, man, more people need to hear these stories, not just from my lips and further than I can ever go. And there's going to be a day that I die if Jesus' return continues um, to not yet happen. And so he begins to record this brilliant account of his personal experience of Jesus as he's beginning to meditate on Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and how he continues to work through his people in the church, answering questions like, who is Jesus? What is he really like? What does he have to do with my work? What does he have to do with the political systems of the day? How is he actually my hope? What does it mean for him to actually be the king of Israel? What does it actually mean for him to be our rescuer, the one that everybody's been looking for? What does all this mean? And what's so fascinating to me is when we come to John's account, is that it doesn't matter who you are sitting in any of these chairs, there is a moment that both Jesus will encourage you deeply and challenge you in a very relevant way. And here's partly why, because Jesus is his own person. (laughs) We don't come so that we can make Jesus in our image. And if he's not exactly me, if he's not exactly you, but he's a real person, fully God, fully human, he's going to challenge every single one of us in every cultural context in which we find ourselves. Are we willing to believe that about Jesus, that he's real and so really meets us in ways that grow our understanding of him? Well, today we're going to get an opportunity to meet Jesus in a situation where the wine runs out and to explore what he wants to reveal about who he is, God incarnate, to us when he shows up in this space, okay? So if you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2? John chapter 2. So if you're looking in the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the fourth testimonial account um, there of who Jesus is. John um, is on giving us some stories, some experiences that he's had with Jesus and wants us to know what he is like. So let me give you the setting. Um, We're at a wedding in Cana. It's roughly within a 10-mile radius of Nazareth, okay? So this is more than likely Jesus' home turf. Jesus is invited to the wedding, his mama is invited to the wedding, his disciples are invited to the wedding, and then eventually at some point in the celebration, somebody's like, oh man, can you get me another? And then the servants and the staff are like, oh snap, we're out, no more IPAs, you know. <coughs> anyway, um, and so there's this moment where the wine runs out, and I'm going to cut to the chase on, on for, for, for some of you, and this may be an internal dialogue if you grew up in the church. I'm just going to say it right out the gate. This is real wine, okay? So I was on a music traveling team in college. You're going to love this name. It's called Heart Song. Mm. <laughs> you know, it was a Christian college, and we traveled around, and part of our job is we went to all these different kinds of churches across the Midwest. And so small churches, medium churches, large churches, um, churches who hated drums, churches who loved drums, churches who had a whole bunch of different kinds of interesting perspectives. But we went there, and our goal was to encourage these churches, and so we would lead worship, and we would preach, and so give the staff and kind of all their volunteers kind of a break to encourage them. 
And, I, you know, part of that, too, is, hey, we're sent by the college, so guess what we're doing? Recruiting students, okay? So we're in one of the Sunday school classes with some of the youths of the day, um, and we're there in the Sunday school class, and I still remember this gentleman, seemed like a really sweet guy, he opens it up and just happened to be on this passage, and he goes, now listen, kids, this isn't wine, okay? There was no alcoholic nature to this at all. And I just asked him, I was early in my studies, in biblical studies, and I just said, where do you get that from? And he goes, it just wasn't. And I said, okay. And I just smiled. I was like, listen, this isn't going to make or break someone's faith in this moment. I'm a guest. I get it. I just remember, it just, it just wasn't. I was like, okay, you don't want to talk about this. That's fine. Um, I'm here to recruit students. Let's keep going. Um, but the reality is, there is no textual warrant or even historical warrant that there was no such thing as wine back then. Of course, there was fermented drink back then. You can go all the way back to Noah um, and Genesis and, like, you know, out of the flood, he comes and he like cultivates this vineyard and the dude gets smashed. It's not a good example. All right. That's not like Noah. There's other times you're like Noah. And then this time you're like Noah. Like, <laughs> okay. But in here, this is definitely alcoholic. Now, some people might even say, hey, but it was a lower percentage. Cool. There's all kinds of percentages that we have available to us today. The reality is, in the text, <laughs> the host makes it very clear. He's like, man, usually at the end of the wine, when people are smashed, they can't tell the difference between good wine and bad wine. It was common that people, we, either you're drinking a ton of low alcohol content wine or a little bit of higher alcohol. Anyway, there's alcohol, okay? <laughs> it's there. And that's what Jesus makes is alcoholic wine. So, welcome to the text. Now, um, in the midst of this, <laughs> Jesus is there at the wedding. The wine runs out, and his mom comes to him. And I love this. She's like, if you've had relationships at all, she states a fact that isn't just a fact. It's also a question, right? Hey, there's no wine. Cool, thanks. I'll go journal about that tonight. No, right? There's no wine. <coughs> that means do something about it. And uh, now, we don't know what Mary was expecting here. Um, John makes it pretty clear in his text here that um, this is the first sign, as it's described, where he's seeking to, to display who he is. Actually, I was sitting at the breakfast table with my kids and wife this morning. We're, re we're going through Matthew kind of at the, the breakfast table. And the passage we landed on this morning, I just find it fascinating how it often plays into <laughs> this. Maybe I make it. I don't know. Um, but... We're sitting there, and it's the passage where there's a, prof a prophet in his hometown has no honor, right? So people are like, oh, look at the apocryphal gospels. Like Jesus as a boy is like turning other kids into birds or something. And listen, there's just no proof of that. And that's why people didn't accept that as historically accurate and helpful, these other false gospels. Because even when you're in Matthew, everybody sees Jesus come back, and they're like, hey, I know you. There are your brothers. Here are your sisters. There's your mom. I saw you growing up when you lost a tooth. Um, there's nothing about your childhood life that made me think that you were the Messiah, okay? Everybody had this understanding that it seemed like Jesus was living a quiet, ordinary, beautiful life before he stepped into his messianic role according to God's design and purpose, okay? So while he's there, we don't know what Mary's anticipating. We just know that she wants Jesus to do something about it. And Jesus, he recognizes that Mary wants him to do something about this. And so he kind of responds like, hey, what do you want me to do about this? Like, my hour hasn't come. Now, there's a lot going on there. John is writing in such a way that 
you're meant to kind of wrestle not only with listening in, a, in an oral cult culture and an oral culture too. You're, you're listening and you're seeing patterns. And actually throughout the gospel account of John, our has this language that's always forecasting to the cross, the moment where his blood will be poured out like wine. And, and finally he will come about bringing about the redemption of the world. All of this is kind of swirling in Jesus' mind and heart and in this moment. But people are like, how can Jesus talk to his mama like that? calls her woman what's going on now here's the reality this was not written in midwestern culture okay with certain niceties and perspectives on how one is to communicate what is also very clear in this particular cultural context that this is not disrespectful but what jesus is doing is creating an appropriate sense of distance jesus is not going to be told by anyone even his mama as to when he's going to start his ministry that's between him, the Father, and the Spirit. And so there's no framework where you're going through Mary to finally twist the arm of Jesus. There was none of that. Actually, her name's not even used here appropriately to create a little bit of distance to the mother of Jesus, interestingly enough. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's still speaking respectfully, but he's creating distance. And yet, in the midst of all of saying all that, then Mary just like looks at the servants and is like, hey, do whatever he says. There's so much going on here that's not even said, um, which is, once again, really common in an ancient Near Eastern kind of indirect culture. And the servants are like, okay, what's going to happen here? Now, with all this wine that's out, this is where things start to get a little crazy because Jesus makes a whole lot of wine, like a whole lot. Um, we see that there are six jars here that we use for this Jewish rite of purification. And Jesus, uh, and to give you a window into what that'd be like, if you had Three fifty-five gallon trash cans. Three fifty. I mean, those are big trash cans, full of wine. That's expensive. Even if you're getting like Trader Joe's two buck chuck, that's not. <laughs> that's shelling out something, right? This is some significant amount of wine. And what's so fascinating to me is that Jesus says, "Just hey, fill up the jars." And so they do it, you know. And then he says, "Take out a little ladle, and I want you to go take that to the host of the party." There's no, like, abracadabra. There's no, like, there's no, like, massive fanfare where it's like, come, behold. There's none of that. He's just, like, fill it up with water and then basically tells the servants who haven't seen anything change yet, why don't you take a scoop of that water and take it to the host? (laughs) They're like, what's okay? Let's see what's going to happen here. (laughs) And then what's amazing is the host of the party, so he's, I mean, this is more than likely a really professional kind of gig, the sommelier, in, in other words, I think I'm saying that right, the person who knows what to drink and what to, how to provide like a really awesome party, more than likely he's hired to make extraordinary parties. His reputation's hanging on this. He doesn't even have an idea. He like, he tastes this and he goes, oh my goodness. And he like goes to the groom and he honors the groom. He's like, listen, most people, hey, they're way too smashed to even taste good wine at this point. They say the bad stuff, and listen, I know good wine, and this is some of the best wine I've ever tasted. And so this groom, like, you know, you just imagine, like, puts his chest out a little bit. It's like, yeah, that's right, you know. <laughs> he has no idea. <laughs> and slowly you just see this groom being honored, and so his family being honored. And it's an extraordinary space where Jesus saves the day. He saves the party, and he saves the honor of this family. Now, we don't know why. We don't know what happened or you know, you could go down some imaginative trails, like how much wine did Jesus' disciples drink? Like, did they the extra add-ons or what have you? But that you have this element where this family either didn't prepare enough or couldn't afford enough. Whatever the reason, they didn't have enough. 
And that would have been extraordinarily shameful. Not only that, on that family, of specifically the groom, but it also would have been really shameful for the new married couple because that would have been a sign. Like, oh man, they can't take it to their guests. What's their, what? What's their marriage going to be like? All of this was interwoven in this cultural perspective, in this space, in this time. And when Jesus shows up, he not only meets a need, but he, ex- he celebrates with joy and creates this space where everybody's honored. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And right here, we get a window into what Jesus is like, really. Here's, here's what we're supposed to learn today. Jesus, he always brings better wine. He always brings better wine. Always. Um, now, Wine. Why wine? Okay, what's up with this imagery here? Well, two things. When you look across the biblical text, Genesis through Revelation, wine has kind of a mixed bag kind of uh, perspective or presentation. It's usually used one of two ways. It's either talking about good use or a bad use. It's either talking about God's approval of engaging that, even with Paul talking to Timothy. He's like, hey, man, you might want to just drink a little bit of wine, calm your stomach down a little bit. Um, It's sometimes talked about in a good way, and sometimes it's viewed very abhorrently by God as in this abusive kind of space. Um, But it's often used as an image of celebration and joy again and again and again and again. Now, I bring all that up, and I also can't help but notice the context of the text, but the context of the people in this room. And I know that even though wine may be an image of joy in the biblical text, it may have an association of destruction in your context, whether it be your family, whether it be your own life. And so I want you to know that this in no way, shape, or form is saying that your joy is decreased if you can't engage in wine. It's just a symbol of joy. And if you yourself are wrestling through addiction and you've been asking that question, that's why we host AA here on Friday nights as a space where we can support one another as we walk with our brokenness and lean into God's grace and support one another, okay? So I just want to name that from the get-go. But I also then want to lean into the thread that Jesus is pulling here in the text and that joy is on display here when he's leaning into this imagery of celebration and wine in the wedding. And this is so important. When we think about Jesus always bringing better wine because we live in a world where the wine runs out. Think about this imagery where the wine runs out always, eventually. Give it enough time. Now, I don't know if many of you heard this story, but over the past couple weeks, um, just hearing more and more about Chesley Christ. I don't know if you heard of her. Um, it was a really painful, painful story. She was the 2019 winner of Miss USA. Um, she was the correspondent for Extra. I mean, an extraordinary woman with extraordinary accomplishment and influence. And she died a few weeks ago at age 30. Um, and that she took her own life. And I don't bring that up to instrumentalize her death, but simultaneously, this was one of the strong ones. This was someone who had nearly everything that she set her heart out to do. In her journey towards, um, and in her uh, pursuit of the Miss America or Miss USA pageant, she even talked about mental health and her engagement with a therapist and a counselor But no one, everybody just, when I was listening to more and more stories, nobody saw this coming. I mean, she set out goals and she would accomplish them. Everybody looked to her as the example of strength, of pursuing what it meant to like live life to the full. 
Sure, she wrestled through some things, but she was also experiencing victory. And then out of nowhere, it all ended. And a wake of pain that came over. I bring that up because whatever brings you joy, whatever you think is at the center of your joy, whether it's accomplishment, whether it's health, whether it's not doing what you saw your parents do, whether it's not doing what you saw a previous generation do, whether it's being a certain kind of person, whether it's getting that promotion, whether it's having a certain financial status. There's a whole host of things that we slowly tell ourselves that if I just have that, if I can just get that, if I can just have that kind of spouse, that kind of friendship, if I can just have that kind of child, all of these things that we think to ourselves if we can just get them. But the reality is we live in a world where the wine runs out. Eventually, there's going to be a crisis that comes. There's going to be a moment where you're going to say, this I thought was enough and it's not enough. And you're going to ask yourself, what are you going to do in that moment? You see, Jesus has come not just to save us from sin, but to save us unto joy. Sometimes we can look at just what Jesus has done in, for us in the past rather than what he's calling us to both in the present and the fullness in the future. And joy's at the center of this. And we're all looking for joy. Uh, there's a recent article in NPR um, entitled Finding Joy After the Pandemic, um, or in the pandemic, rather. And they looked at these 12 surprising ideas of people who either had a really rough case of COVID or those who had been in extraordinary isolation and just trying to clamor, search for, find joy in any pocket they could. And that's because every single one of us wants joy. There's no one in here. And maybe even more now than ever. Joy. And it's true of every generation. It's not just now, but it's true of every human being throughout the history of humankind. Um, we are in the midst of what is historically called Black History Month. Not that black history only happens in February. It happens 12 months out of the year. But it does give us an opportunity to highlight um, and to remember together as a culture. Um, and, yeah, there it is. There's the picture. So um, in that process, just kind of learning history and continuing to grow in my own understanding of black history, I had an opportunity to just kind of learn a little bit more of what is considered one of the longest-running TV shows in syndication history. It ran from 1971 to 2006. And if you don't know, by looking at that picture, that's Soul Train, okay? Soul Train. Um, now, in 1971, it was, it was such an extraordinary rarity to see a person of color on TV, let alone to see a person of color with joy. And Don Carlson, African-American leader, had within his heart and his mind a deep passion to celebrate black joy. And he said, you know, I'm going to pursue this. And so he moved, it started to gain some success in Chicago. He moved over to L.A. He continued to hit roadblock after roadblock. Nobody thought it would work, so nobody asked for a share in the show. So he had full ownership. He consistently fought for primetime places on TV. And then finally, when it hit success, Black Joy was on display. It encouraged the minority community and as well challenged the majority community to say, Black Joy exists and it's good for all. And this is a way of saying that joy is good for every human being. It's designed for every human being, not just certain subsets of the population, but for all. And we should be able to see others who are not like oneself and be able to celebrate the joy we see in each other. And Don Carlson, he left a legacy of an extraordinary institution. 
in his pursuit of joy where it was often overlooked. There's a lot to admire there. And for us as followers of Jesus, we're not just looking for any joy. We're looking for the fullness of joy, right? I, I love the little detail that the, the six purification jars were filled to the brim. Isn't that just something? To the brim. Now, once again, some of my history around alcohol and family history, it almost feels sacrilegious that Jesus uses like special Jewish purification jars to hold his alky, right? Um, I, I don't know, maybe not for you, but for me, I'm like, man. And then I was thinking, oh, wait, in the first century, they didn't perceive it that way. This wasn't sacrilegious. But for me, I'm like, oh, man, I'm really wrestling. Like, how, man, Jesus is pressing the envelope. He wasn't, okay? Um, that's more our cultural context when it comes to this type of thing versus his cultural context and the original context. And I have to ask myself, like, why is it so hard for me to imagine that Jesus would be at the center of so much joy? And it's partly because it's hard for me to imagine that Jesus is someone who loves to laugh and smile. <laughs> now, if I asked you to close your eyes and, and, and think about the first image that pops into your mind, once again, when you think about Jesus, it's probably either that original painting or it carries one of three emotions, either a somberness over your sin, a sadness over the broken state of the world, or a complete sense of judgment because of the rejection of him. All of those have facial expressions and dynamics that create distance. And I want to be clear, the biblical text actually has a category for those. <laughs> so I'm not dismissing them. He is called a man of sorrows for a reason. He is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. He's someone who is the King of Israel that comes with so much weight and even thinking of the cross before him that he begins to sweat blood. He's fully God. And that's where I think that other category of, oh, when Jesus has come to give us a narration of who God is, we think that God is someone who's so high and above, we, we take like the cultural value of stoicism that actually isn't in the text, and we place that upon God such that even when the good things, like go back to another place where good things happen, back in Genesis 1 or 2, where he says it's good. What's God's posture and mannerism here? Is it stoic? And even when it's really good, it's just like, is good. When he looks at his creation and he finally says it's very good, he's like, it is very good. No smile. <laughs> With such reverence is antithetical to joy. And <laughs> And listen, there is an element to who God is that comes with awe that really does bring Isaiah down to his feet and down to his knees and down to his face in Isaiah 6 when he sees the grandeur of who God is, to be sure. But that's not the whole picture. And when we make it the whole picture, then it begins to shape what we expect when we come here as a gathered people. That's when we start to say, hey, I'm, la I'm laughing too much at church. Oh, man, I'm joking around. I'm not being serious enough at church. Or you start to hear even things like I used to hear all the time growing up. It's like, hey, don't run. You're in, you're in church, right? Anything that I thought was, like, good, but it was also still morally acceptable in God's word that even it seemed like it was totally okay in other places. As soon as I came here, I had to be sad, you know? I had to be sad and still. Huh. If anybody knows Arrested Development, you know, neither seen nor heard. Um, <laughs> And this whole framework that that's what it means to be close to God. Intimacy 
lacks joy. But that's not who his people are. I mean, who does Jesus keep getting accused of being? He's being accused of being a drunkard and a partier. Later, people are like, he, he, he confronts some of his critics because he's like, John the baptizer came and he was like hellfire and brimstone. And then you said he was crazy. And then I came and I'm hanging out with people at parties and you said I'm a drunkard. It's like, nobody can please you people, right? We are called to be a people who can laugh and laugh hard. We're called to be a people who can smile and smile big. We're called to be a people who can joke with one another. But it's hard for us to even begin to think of that as like a healthy and actually an important quality of the people of God if we can't even imagine that in Jesus. But Jesus is someone who loves to laugh and smile. So here's what I want you to do. I, I want to invite us to just close our eyes for a second. Every single one of us, if you're willing, I don't think anybody's going to like elbow you in the side or anything, so fairly safe space. I've got my eyes open, so I'll be the accountability, I guess. <laughs> Close your eyes, and I, I just want you to imagine, and all I want you to do is to think of facial expressions. Just imagine Jesus smiling. Imagine him laughing with you. There may be a twinge of like, oh, is this sacrilegious? No, and, and he's not laughing at you. He's not poking fun at you. Imagine him enjoying you, enjoying him. him pursuing your joy, finding delight in knowing that you, <laughs> you're smiling. Think about those, those friendships that even when you go through a really hard thing and a, and a close friend comes up next to you and they make a cheesy or silly joke just to infuse a little bit of lightheartedness even in the midst of heavy, that's what Jesus wants. He wants to, yes, weep with those who weep, but he longs to laugh with those who laugh and he longs to celebrate. This is an important aspect to who Jesus is as a real person. Go ahead and open your eyes. Open your eyes. We need to understand that essential to Jesus is personality for us. And so the window we get into God's heart for us is a one of joy for you and for me. And only when we understand that that's an essential quality of who God is and what he wants for us will we even have the capacity to know deep joy with him and deep joy with each other. You know, I was, I was a worship pastor in Chicago while going to seminary. And one of my favorite moments, uh, I got to know this sweet older saint, older lady named Pat. And uh, she always brought in flowers and stuck them on the communion table. And uh, one of those moments while we were sitting there, and she was bringing in the flowers. She got, got there about five minutes late, so people are up, and they're singing, and she kind of saunters her way up to the front, and she puts the flowers on the communion table. And so I get down from leading the music, and I come, and I sit down like the fourth or fifth pew, and my wife and I just start dying laughing. Like, you know, you know that laugh when you're in church, and you're trying to, like, keep it in? And so, but it only gets worse as you're trying to hold it in. Like, in any other context, you just might go, ha, <laughs> ha. But, like, because you're trying to hold it in, it, like, gets more absurd in your mind and in your body. Anyway, so we're sitting there because we look up at the communion table, and Pat had brought flowers, and she'd stuck them in a Corona glass <laughs> and set them on the communion table. And in the denominational structure I was in at that point, that was, like, anathema, y'all. Like, that was, 
But all I could think was like, God, you've got to enjoy this right now. Like, this is just <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I went and told Pat afterwards, and she's like, ah, well. You know, it's awesome. <laughs> just want to be more like Pat when I get older. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite memories. But lest we forget, friends, like, God's the one who designed pleasure and joy. This wasn't something that the enemy was like, ah, this will trip him up. No, this was always God's idea. And, 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 and the outcomes, like the, the physical manifestations of joy or smiles or even tears of joy, laughter, these are good things that we can lean into. Now, you don't have to walk in here and paste on a smile if you don't have it, but man, if you're ready to laugh, laugh hard and lean into each other's joy. There's a really great book, if you haven't read it before, by one of the, br- the most brilliant minds of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, and it's entitled Screwtape Letters. And in this book, if you're not familiar with it, um, it's basically one of Satan's uh, head demons, okay? He's writing to his apprentice demon. So their, their main goal is, right, to dismantle humanity and make a mockery of God in the midst of his creation. And so this head demon is trying to train his apprentice demon on how to destroy humanity. And I love this little warning. He says, Remember, this is a demon talking to another little demon, all right? Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. It is his invention, not ours. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Remember... Whenever you're engaging with pleasure, that's a dangerous place to be because we didn't design that, the demon says, right? That's what God designed. And that's where he whispers to his creation. You see, Jesus' ministry at its center was longing for joy. He says, I've come to bring life and life abundant. I actually haven't come to condemn the world because it's already condemned. I've come to bring life. And anybody who trusts in me will find it. They're already lost in destruction and pain and heartache and sin. I've come that you have what you don't have in yourself. Life, joy. And that's why he was so passionate about rooting out injustice and unrighteousness because both of those things in their holistic framework of the world destroy our joy. And he wants us to know joy to the full. You see, Jesus, I, I don't know your, your story, I don't know your history with the church, but Jesus isn't an obstacle to our joy. He's the only path to it. And he longs to give it. So how do, how do we get there? How do we know more of his joy? Well, we put ourselves in the shoes of the servants in this story. And we just do whatever he says to do. <laughs> do whatever he tells you to do. Now, what, what does that mean? First, it means believing in Jesus and who he is and what he's come to do for you. And that he's done it sufficiently for you so that you don't have to perform to finally be good enough. He's already said you're worth it. And he's made you good enough in the sufficient worth of his death on the cross. Simultaneously, that kind of God who would go to such great lengths to communicate love and to create a space for us to be reconciled to him, do what he says. Like, don't just believe in him, but believe him. Give your full allegiance to him as king. That when he calls us to an edict, submission isn't a form of drudgery, but a path to delight. If he is indeed who he said he is and those who died unwilling to recant of who they said that he is and that he defeated the grave. If indeed that is who he is. Now, I don't know about you, but once again, in a church context, when we start saying stuff like that, you start thinking spiritual categories. 
Not that any part of life isn't spiritual, but we tend to dissect and cut it apart in such a way that we think, oh, you mean like this special spiritual spot? No, I mean like all of life. Are you coming to him in prayer and saying, bring joy here and here and here and here? Yeah, to all of it. And this one area where, where I'm wrestling, can, can you guide me here? Show me the way. This one area here, can, I'm wrestling here. Can you show this place? I feel like I'm doing fine, but I feel like I might not be if you're not directing me. So make it better, you know? All of it. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Let me ask you, where have you been holding back? Are there places in your life where you're hesitant to follow Jesus because you're going to think, you think that it's going to lead to less joy? I listen to hear Jesus. I just, you know what? That's antiquated. That doesn't make any more sense compared to what I'm hearing over here. That'll, that, I think this will bring me more joy. Jesus like, I've done all of this. Trust me. Where are you hanging back when he's called you to get after it? Because <laughs> you're like, I, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I mean, there's an element, too, where we're picking up our cross and following him. But also, Jesus, we see in the, uh, the book of Hebrews, it was for the joy set before him that he went through all of that for us. So what are you holding back? Did you imagine if Mary held back, if she never went to Jesus and wasn't honest about the lack? Did you imagine if the servants were like, hey, you want me to fill those jars with water? This is crazy. No way. Hey, can someone just go into town and figure out what we can do? There were other options, but instead, they followed through and they listened. Imagine what would have not happened, how, how the disciples and how Mary and how the servants would have never been able to see God show up in an extraordinary way. Where have you been holding back? Because listen, that's where that kind of joy is available. And it's not actually an outcome-based kind of joy. It's not like I've already defined the outcome. The, the joy comes in saying, like Mary does, actually here and trusting in her son. <laughs> she just says, hey, here's the problem. You're going to work it out. There's something really powerful about that, handing it over. The joy comes not in the predetermined outcome, but trusting in the one who has it and who has you. And that kind of joy, it's explosive. And it meets every single person there. It has impact on the groom. It has impact on the bride. That she is excited to be a part of this family. Once again, and here's the deal. There are certain aspects in your life you have no idea that God has been working behind the scenes to catalyze your joy. That's also something on display here. The groom, the bride, they never know. The family never appears to know. The host never even knows. But yet, they're all experiencing the outcome of God uniquely showing up, and they're not even aware. But the servants are. The disciples are, and Mary is. And they see God display his glory he's shown up and it's a better window into what he longs for his people answering real life practical dynamics in our lives to bring joy and in that spot as well there's a space for lament and a space for longing if we're honest about where we don't have joy and in that there's also a promise we lamented earlier but there's a day coming when we'll no, have, no longer have to lament. 
Because the promise embedded in all of this is that one day the party will come in full and it will never end. Because the life of the party, Jesus himself has promised he'll come back. And he's going to meet you and me. And he longs to share that joy. And for now, we get a foretaste of that. Even communion is meant to be, in some ways, an anticipation of the joy that we're to have in Jesus. And that feast that's coming, the book of Revelation highlights this, this, this meal that's to come, this celebration where Jesus is at the head. Everyone who's at the table will know joy to the full. Now, you know, there's an old thing. I don't know if it's used as much anymore, but hell is the place where the party happens, right? I don't want to go to heaven. It's boring. Listen, hell is not where the party happens. Hell is where nobody call, calls you back. Hell is the place where everybody's running on empty and the wine is gone. It's one of the driest places in, you know, in the framework of existence, <laughs> if you want to think of it that way. And yet heaven, that's a place where the wine never runs out. That's a place where God meets us to the full. And we'll finally be able to rest in eternity with him. We live in a world now where the wine will run out eventually. But Jesus, he always brings a better wine if we're willing to listen, if we're willing to receive him. Are you ready for him? Hmm? Are you looking for him? Or are you holding back? Let's pray together. Let's pray. We're going to do a couple of things here in this prayer time. First, we're going to create some space for you to lay down whatever you're holding back. For you to name in prayer whatever it is that you're wanting to remain silent about. And just give it over to him and ask him, Lord Jesus, would you bring joy here? Would you bring a new and better sense of your presence and your care here? Would you show up in this way? And release the outcome, trusting that he's got you. I want to invite you to do that now. Take just a, a minute to do that. Just where is it that you're holding back? Or maybe you're hesitating. You're close, but you're just like, you know what? I'm, I'm just not sure I'm ready to really lay this down before you. Would you let, surrender that to him this morning? Make this real. It could be a super practical. It could feel more ethereal. Just whatever's on your heart and mind, whatever the Spirit's stirring up right now, lay it out before him. deeper joy. Would you meet us in our longings? And now I want to take some time as we've been doing over the past few weeks now. And we're going to take about 90 seconds. We've called it E90 where we're taking 90 days to take 90 seconds a day to pray for nine people in our life who don't know the joy of Jesus in their life. And I just want you to take, who are those nine people that you wrote out on your post, on your, on your bookmark or in your uh, Formed Life book? Or maybe you're, you're just joining us and you're like, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. Just, is there someone that God's laying on your heart or mind that doesn't know the joy of Jesus? We're going to take 90 seconds and I just want you to pray that they may know the joy of the Lord. Maybe their wine has run out. Maybe their joy is at its end. But it doesn't have to remain there. Pray that Jesus meets them, that they would surrender to him and receive new life and new joy. Would you do that now?
Lord Jesus, it's abundantly clear across the testimonies of who you are in Scripture that you came for the lost, the broken, and the hurting to bring healing, to bring wholeness inside and out, personally, communally, structurally, this world over. You've come to bring redemption for those who don't know you but experience the joy in life that only comes in knowing you and being received by you and trusting in what your son Jesus has done on the cross for us. And so receiving that as sufficient for ourselves. God, we pray for those folks that were named in the quietness of our heart here as we prayed. We trust your spirit. We trust you to work through us in those interactions. We trust you to woo those people unto yourself. Be safe.